uh, I've called the sermon Pride or Prejudice. The reason I have is that in the Corinthian church, pride was a problem. And the reason that pride is a problem, it always ends up in prejudging. That's prejudice. And so just to do a little bit of a review, here's the problem that the Apostle Paul, who is the writer, sort of, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, of the uh, First Corinthian and Second Corinthian letters, uh, the Apostle Paul has been informed, and, and it's true, that there's a division in the church. And, and he's tremendously unhappy about the division in the church. Now, you should know that Paul founded the Corinthian church. And uh, he was there for one and a half years with the people in Corinth. Now, if I were to say to you <clears throat> that I had spent, a, a, before we pastored this church or started this church, that I was with another church as a pastor for a year and a half, in your mind, you'd just sort of automatically be thinking, so he preached Sunday morning and uh, maybe one or two services, and then he preached Wednesday, and uh, he showed up at a few events and over a year and a half, and... Uh, you know, have vacations, all that kind of stuff. But when Paul, when I say Paul was a year and a half with the church, it's totally different. Uh, Paul founded the church, came to know the people, worked as a tent maker among the people in the community, and taught them every single day. The church gathered every day, sometimes more than once, and so they spent hours and hours for a year and a half sort of... You, not exaggerating, it'd be like spending, you know, five years of time as a pastor in a church the way we do it today. He knew all these people intimately, and they knew everything about him, and they understood his character and all that was going on and what he was like. And now he had left, and he hears that there's a problem in the church. So now he's going to write a letter to the church. But I want you to understand this, and I want you to get this picture in your mind. When we think of writing a letter, we think of getting a pen out and, and we write a letter or we type it into our computer and we send off an email. But Paul didn't actually write any letters. He signed some of them, but he never wrote them. He would have a man that we call an amunensis, like a secretary, who was an expert in taking what we call dictation from somebody and getting it down on the scrolls as he had his... Uh, his ink well and his ink, uh, his quill pen, and he would have been a, a very, very expert, almost like an artist in the way he wrote, and he would be watching every move that the, quote, writer, Paul in this case, was making. I, I want you to see that because it's full of, uh, of a picture of his own emotion here and what he's trying to do. So imagine that Paul's in a room. He would have been in some kind of a room. They would have had, to, had a table where the amanuensis sat, and uh, Paul would probably walk around the room the whole time and, uh, and be thinking and be looking at the amanuensis and stopping and, and having various emotions as he's speaking out what he wants them to receive. And this Amanuensis would be an expert in the language, would know how to put it down just right and to get Paul's emotion and everything into what was written because the letters then weren't mailed, they were taken and they were read to the congregation. And when they were read to the congregation, it would, they would have been written in such a way that the congregation could even get the feel of what Paul was saying. 
It's so important that you see that, and I'll draw your attention to that uh, more than once as we move along. So here's the, here's the situation now in Corinth. Uh, there are some who are, are, are not for either Apollos, who was a great teacher in the day, or Peter, who probably was a strong teacher, or Paul, but who are against Paul, against his teaching and his authority. So Paul has a dilemma. He has to assert his authority while at the same time making it clear that ministers or pastors, church leaders, and apostles are to be servants of the people. So I imagine he's standing there, he's looking at his amanuensis, he nods his head, and he starts off, verse 1. So, look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ. Mere servants of Christ. This word servants is an unusual word. The Romans had this big ship that they would have, and uh, it had a special name, but it had three layers, and they were all rowers in the ship. And there were the under rowers, the ones in the third level down. And they were, they were the ones that really gave the power to the ship. But they weren't in control of anything. Somebody else was in control telling them what to do and how to do it and how to do the strokes. If you ever go over to Benderson and watch some of the rowers over there and you hear them being yelled at, you'd know exactly what it would have been like. They do what they're told. And so Paul is saying to the people uh, that, uh, that he and Apollos are just under rowers, like slaves of Christ, who, uh, and we have been put in charge, he says to the people in Corinth, and I'm going to add to this on purpose, as you already know, We've been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Now, we studied this two weeks ago. Mysteries are the things that can't be discovered by human wisdom. They need to be revealed. And it's not like an Agatha Christian mystery, Christian, whatever, mystery, <laughs> or, or a Grisham mystery. Uh, it's totally different than that. In Romans 16, 25, we read these words. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. What's his gospel? The message... I proclaim about Jesus, who is the Christ, in keeping with the revelation, revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. And many times I've said to you, oh, this was written in Isaiah uh, chapter 52 and 53, 500 years before Jesus came, and it pictures Jesus, and there's all kinds of, quote, mysteries that are now revealed uh, by the apostles and others in New Testament times. So Paul had already told them at the end of chapter 3 that we studied last time together that he belonged to them. But that didn't negate his authority and the purpose for which God had placed Paul in the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the Bible name for church. So Paul says, and in a way it's the theme of the whole thing, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. First of all, Paul is talking about himself and about Apollos. But Paul is talking about the character of a Christian leader or anyone who handles uh, the truth of God. And what Paul is really saying is that you already know that Apollos and I are already faithful. 
And so now Paul points them to a future day. This becomes an important theme. And we talked about it two weeks ago. But he does it in a very unique way. Now look at verse 3. Now, in the underlying Greek language, and this isn't translated, I don't think, of any of your Bibles, uh, it should start off by saying, as for me. So Paul says, as for me, I care very little if I'm judged by you. The word judged here means examined. And so think of a courtroom, and you're in the dock, as they call it, or you're, uh, you're being examined by an attorney. He's not making a verdict. He's examining you. He's asking you questions that's aiming toward a verdict. And Paul says, I care very little if I'm examined by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself that way. My conscience is clear. He's talking about his faithfulness regarding his faithfulness and his calling. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul is saying his primary responsibility is to the Lord. It is the Lord who will judge Paul regarding his faithfulness to the gospel he is preaching, not anyone in the Corinthian church. And Paul acknowledges that if he is guilty of self-deception, the Lord will judge him. Now, it's rather easy for us to be self-deceived. So the question might be, how can I know if I'm on the right path or if I'm deceiving myself? It's a good question. We know by the way God's Spirit informs our conscience. But conscience is not infallible. Usually when conscience says, don't do that, it is right. But when conscience says, go ahead and do it, we should still go to God and say, is this okay? May I do this? That's why it's so important for us to be men and women of prayer who examine God's Word daily and use our gifts as we serve in the church the body of Christ. If we pray and read and serve, God will have no trouble directing us, encouraging us, and even warning us. When I was first saved, uh, my pastor of the church that I committed myself to shortly after, Dr. Bill McRae, discipled me. There were six of us that he discipled. And uh, one of the things that we did in the discipleship is he made us memorize Scripture. He always memorized more than we did, but he demanded perfection from us. And I still remember the first Scripture that he gave us to memorize, and uh, he first taught it to us. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. In the New Living Translation, it reads this way, all Scripture is inspired by God. And while he was teaching, he said that and he stopped and he looked at the six of us. We're all new Christians. And he says, okay, all scripture. What does that mean? Well, we all said the same thing. We, we were new. We said, it, it means the Bible. And he said, yes, it does. And there are many scriptures that make it clear that our New Testament is inspired by God. But here, when this was written, there was no New Testament. This is talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And then he taught us that the early church had as their Bible the Septuagint. That's a word that means 70 because of 70 authors. And the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
That's why sometimes you'll see a, a quote that Paul makes uh, and, and says that Isaiah did it or whatever, and if we go to our Hebrew scriptures, it'll be slightly different because Paul is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the reason that's important is that he's saying that this is inspired by God and useful. So it's wrong not to become as knowledgeable as you can about all the Bible, yes, New Testament, Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, Greek Scriptures, but especially we need to understand the Old Testament. And he says, all Scripture is inspired to God, by God, and is useful to teach us what is true, we need to know that, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, and it straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. So that means it's a great error for any Christian to ignore disciplined reading of God's word and prayer and fellowship and instruction. This doesn't mean that we should judge shouldn't judge inappropriate behavior in the church. We must do that. Immoral behavior, unethical behavior, ungodly behavior, doctrine that is heretical. And chapter 5 next time, that'll, we'll really learn that. But look at verse 5 now. Therefore, because of all he's already said, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. What is the appointed time? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but the Greek text is complicated here. But one word will help us. Paul is actually saying that those in Corinth who are judging him must not render a final verdict, which the Lord will do when he returns. Now, throughout Paul's writings, the second coming of Jesus impacted his here and now behavior. Paul lived in expectation of an anytime return of Jesus and of certain judgment, examination, and the verdict of his life at that time. Now, there is a difficult balance between grace and accountability or God's discipline. Sometimes we have abused grace thinking that we can get away with anything because we're Christians, saved for eternity no matter what. Now, that was a problem in the Corinthian church. God still disciplines those he loves. We see it in the book of Proverbs. We see it even in the book of Job. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, it reads this way, and have you forgotten, Christian, the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, now he's talking about us, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. You see, a good family disciplines their children. A good mother and father discipline their sons and daughters. Otherwise, they're going to grow up to be a catastrophe. So my child, just talking about us as, as Christians, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. and Don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Now, now, I need to explain this a little bit. If you're looking at your Bibles, most of your Bibles say, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes each one he accepts as 
his son. Why would it say his son? Well, because in that culture, only sons inherited from the fathers. And in the scriptures, we're taught that as Christians, as far as inheritance is concerned, there's no male or female, there's no slave or free, there doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, how important you are or aren't, none of that matters. We're all equal in what we inherit. We inherit every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place because we're sons, we're all sons of God is the position, but it's here in this the New Living Translation, I like what it says because it helps us a bit to see the family aspect. No discipline is enjoyable while it is, well, I'm sorry, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. We are all God's children when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then it says, and this is important, no discipline is enjoyable while it is happening, but painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Therefore, back to verse 5. Therefore, Paul is saying to the people back in Corinth, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. If you were here last week, you heard one of the best sermons that's ever been preached in this church. Reggie just did an amazing uh, thing when he talked about trials in our lives and what they're about. And one, one of the things he said, I sat through both services and took tons of notes, and he said at one point, he said, when we're in trials, that's when we find out, he didn't use these exact words, but you find out what you have not yet admitted to or didn't realize was a problem in your life. And right away, I thought of myself, especially when I was in the first years of a Christian, uh, I had been a jerk before I was a Christian. After a Christian, I became a Christian jerk. And <laughs> I had to go through a few trials to make me realize one day that pride was a big problem in my life. And it was the trial that exposed the pride. And that happens to all of us when we get in trials. Then we find out what we're really made out of and what we need to do and how we need to commit ourselves to our God who loves us and allows us to go through that kind of discipline, sometimes severely for our good and his glory. And then in, still in uh, verse 5 and on here, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. That's at the, uh, when we're at that judgment. Paul is saying that they should stop their examining of him and wait for God's judgment, receiving their praise from God. In other words, Paul is telling them that he is looking forward to God's rewards, and so should they, so should we. We've already talked about this verse in the previous sermons. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it's aimed at Christians. For we Christians must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, uh, these bodies, whether good or bad. In other words, uh, we get rewards and we go to heaven. And what are the rewards for? Well, there's a lot that we can look at in the New Testament, but it's always faithfulness, always faithfulness. And if we're faithful to what God uh, uses us for, then we get rewards for that. And some may think, well, what about if we weren't faithful? Well, then we lose those rewards, but we're still going to be pretty happy in heaven. But I think we should want the rewards. And this should be a motivation to make us faithful men and women of God. Now, all of this doesn't mean 
that you can't ask appropriate questions about what I teach. This is really important because that's what's happening here with Paul. I mean, you already do. I get emails and all kinds of things, and people come up and say, I don't agree with you with this and this, and I should ex be expected to respond. But over the years, I've met pastors who wanted to quit the ministry because they were constantly under examination by people in the church and never felt they were accepted in the calling God had given them. And I'm so happy to be able to say that's not a problem here. I love you guys, and I feel loved by you. And I'm not the least bit threatened when you come to me and say, I just can't grasp this. I don't know. What did you mean by this? Because that's why we're together to learn from one another. So how should we treat those who do judge us unfairly? We must treat them with kindness. Blessing those who strongly disagree with us. Listen to what Jesus said. He, he was pretty radical sometimes. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you. The word blessed means, one Bible uh, paraphrases it, oh, how happy you are. Okay. Oh, how happy you are when people insult you. Really? Persecute you. The word means to punch you. <laughs> and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, here's the key. Because of me. Make sure that it's not because of you've done some dumb thing. No, because of me. You're being persecuted because you're a Christian, and you're, you're letting people know you are. And what should you do? Well, rejoice and be glad. Be full of joy and be glad. Oh, Reggie just brought this out so good last time. Uh, because great is your reward in heaven. That's what we're looking for. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So nothing unusual is happening. Now, the truth is, we do care what others may say, but we should see it only in the light of what God may say on Judgment Day. Now, verse 6 almost changes the mood. I imagine Paul, he's walking around, the amuensis is there, and he takes a big breather, and he just stops. And then he looks at the amuensis and gives a nod. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul saw him... Self, he saw the Christian life as a family life. We're, we're family. We're all related to one another as uh, spiritual brothers and sisters. So Paul, remember, he's been a year and a half with them. He knows them intimately. They know everything about him. Now, brothers and sisters, you can almost feel some emotion here. I've applied these things to myself and to Paulus for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Now, this is a very disputed verse in the, uh, in the commentaries. Nobody seems to know what it means, but it definitely, if it means nothing else, means I've spent all of that time teaching you, and you learned all of these things from Apollos, who's a great teacher, and from myself as I taught you, and so you already know what the Scriptures say, so don't, don't go beyond what we've already taught you, and then you will not be puffed up. That's a word that you would translate pride. You'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who, this is really powerful, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as the, though you did not? 
I've quoted many times my friend in heaven now, Charlie Tremendous Jones, and a motivational speaker was Zig Ziglar and all of that group at that time, and he used to say all the time in all of his talks, someplace he'd say, yeah, and some of you say, well, I'm a self-made man. And Charlie, with his booming voice, would say, well, that relieves God of that responsibility. <laughs> all of our abilities, our physical characteristics, our spiritual insight, our salvation, all are a grace gift from God. I didn't choose my parents, and if I'm honest about my life, the unexpected has had far more to do with what and where I am than I would like to admit. So what do I have to boast about? Ultimately, I would be nothing if not for God's ongoing purpose in my life, in all of our lives. How can I judge well, the Apostle Paul or Apollos or anybody else that is a faithful uh, minister, leader in a church, how can I judge them in their service to God in the church? But some in Corinth thought they had arrived. They thought Paul was out of touch, unrealistic, even deceived. And Paul answers with a picture of the cross presented with very sarcastic speech. They thought they were better than Paul, but the reason they thought that was because they had turned away from the message of the cross in favor of personal glorification. Some in Corinth had fallen to sinful pride. Pride thinks too highly of oneself and too lowly of others. Pride reflects a wrong perspective about God and oneself. Pride always lacks gratitude and thankfulness for the gifts and abilities one has. Gordon Fee writes this, grace leads to gratitude. Worldly wisdom and self-sufficiently lead to boasting and judging. Grace means humility. Boasting means that one has arrived. Precisely because their boasting reflects such an attitude, Paul turns to irony, sarcasm, to help them see the folly of their boasting. Now, verse 8, he's really into it here. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. Oh, how I wish that you really had begun to reign, that you really were a king so that we also might reign with you. They needed some humility. You, you can actually translate it this way, and I think it works out a little better to see the sarcasm if I, I've changed the translation. I'll just read it and just listen to it. Do you, all, do you already have all you want? Have you already become rich? Have you already begun to reign like a king? And that without us? Oh, how I wish that you really had become a king so that we also might reign with you. They thought they'd arrived. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 1800s was world-renowned, uh, one of the great preachers of all times. Uh, many even say the great preachers, the Apostle Paul Spurgeon. Uh, he had the biggest church anywhere, and everywhere around the world he was known. And um, he uh, had a problem in his day uh, there was a problem with perfectionism as a teaching. And there were many that were teaching that you could become a Christian and then eventually become perfect, sinless in this lifetime. 
And Spurgeon tells a story where he's preaching this sermon against perfectionism, and uh, he finishes it, large audience of thousands. He comes down from his pulpit, and a man comes up to him and says, I just want you to know that I am sinless. I am perfect. And Spurgeon says he'd get arrested today. I tramped on his foot as hard as I could, and he lost his perfectionism immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Paul had this sense of who he was. And, And near the end of his life, he called himself the chief of sinners. Now, why would he say, I'm the chief of sinners? I think a lot of people misunderstand why he said that. What he said is, he spent his whole lifetime to this point, he knew he was going to be martyred soon, and he spent his whole lifetime teaching and and building up the church, brilliant man, and the reason he called himself the chief of sinners is he was saying something like, I can't believe God saved me, me, I killed Christians, I congratulated everybody for killing Stephen, the first martyr. I put Christians in jail. And and God saved me, the chief of sinners. He couldn't, he never got over that. And in verse 9 here, the apostle Paul says something that is just like that. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles, that's himself and Apollos and Peter, for instance, on display at the end of the procession. Now, here's what he's talking about. Triumph. Triumph. It's a word that describes something in the Roman days. A triumph parade happened when a general uh, went in against an enemy and defeated the enemy. And then the general would be sometime made a god or he would uh, be dressed up in a special way and everybody's congratulating him and they would have a parade called a triumph. And the parade would go through all different towns. And at the beginning of the parade, you have the general on his white horse and around him is elite troops right around him and they're being cheered on by huge crowds that would all be out and they're thanking their gods and all this kind of things. And then behind uh, the general would be a group of uh, soldiers who have been in the fight in their best regalia and they're marching along and they're receiving all this praise. And then behind them would be some horse-drawn carts full of the booty that they got from the defeating the enemy. And then behind them, there still would be some soldiers, but these ones would have their, their uh, spears out and there would be a large group of the enemy soldiers that were at the end of the parade and they would, some of them were injured and wounded and barely dressed and terrified and being prodded and booed as they came through the parade, which ended at the Colosseum or also called the theater. And then they would take these soldiers uh, from the enemy and put them in the arena with wild animals and the people would cheer as they watched the animals devour the soldiers. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 9. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Everybody knew what he was talking about in that day. Like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Angels look at the Christians and say, Well, why did they make those people Christians? What a picture Paul draws here. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is a sign of God's triumph 
over sin. To the world, it was a shameful way to die. To God, it was the essence of Jesus' victory over sin and death. There was no pride in being crucified, and Paul took no pride in being an apostle of Jesus Christ. He often called himself a slave of Jesus, as I've already mentioned, the chief of sinners. That is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, 1 John chapter 5. Now look at verse 10. We, Apollos and I, are fools for Christ. Oh, but you're so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honored, but we are dishonored. This is incredible sarcasm. Paul's saying, we're fools. Oh, you're so worldly wise. We're weak. Oh, you're so strong and bragging about it. Uh, you're famous. You're, you're, you're becoming well-known, and we are dishonored. We're on the back of the triumph. And to this very hour in verse 11, he says, we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless. I was going to read a newsletter, but I can't read it because of the part of the world it came from that I got this week of what's happening to Christians in a certain country, and it's just terrible. And to become a Christian in that country, you might as well put a sign on your back, shoot me, or whatever you feel like doing. We're, we generally aren't aware of what's happening in that area in our world, and it's always been that way, and we're just at a time where we have this incredible opportunity where mostly we're not like that. But he uses the word homeless here. The word homeless has taken on a very, very different meaning these days. But in Paul's case, as an itinerant preacher, he doesn't own a home, and he practices tent-making uh, for some income when a church body is not supporting him. Uh, verse 12, the first, the, the first sentence says, we work hard with our own hands. Paul is basically saying that I'm not in this for the money. So he's not living in a cardboard box, but he is living as one who is on the way home while many in the Corinthian church are living as if they've already arrived home. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. For this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. Hebrews chapter 11. I said two weeks ago, you need to read Hebrews chapter 11. You, you need to read it often. It's the hall of faith. You learn what faith is, and you learn about uh, the men and women of faith throughout history. Abraham and Moses and, and Daniel and Jacob and others. And starting at verse 13, it reads this way. All these people in the hall of faith died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. We know that's heaven. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What is prepared for us when we leave these bodies is beyond imagination. It's wonderful. And we need to live now as if we're excited about going home. Now, go back to verse 12. Paul says, we work hard with our own hands, and when we're cursed, we bless. 
And when we're persecuted, we endure it. And when we're slandered, that's the hard part. Slander. Have you ever been lied about? Have you ever been mischaracterized? I have. Oh, it's, you want to just gonna sue them for slander. How can they say that about me? It's not true. And, and other, especially when other people believe it. And Paul says, when we're slandered, we answer kindly. Uh, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Now, the church in Corinth was being accepted by the immoral, idolatrous Corinthian society and not particularly persecuted. We'll learn this next time. Our circumstances are remarkably different than in Paul's day. Nevertheless, we must be sure our relative wealth and pleasures do not capture our minds by keeping us from serving God as an active part of the church. Anything, anything that is pursued only for my pleasure that keeps me from serving God must be cut out of my life. Jesus was not kind in the way he said it. You know, he said, if your eye causes you to stumble or sin, gouge it out and throw it away for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your full body to go into hell. And then he says, if your right hand causes you to stumble or sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, obviously, he wasn't suggesting we gouge out our eyes or cut our hand off, but he was suggesting something as remarkable when he said that. And he was saying that this is not your life now. You're living the Christian life now on the way home where you're just going to wait till you see the parade there. It's, uh, you're not at the end of it. It's incredible. So now, at this point, Paul moves to a new picture of the Christian life, the family. And um, here's what I think happened at this point. Obviously, sanctified, hopefully sanctified imagination. He's in the room, and at this point, he stopped. He's been so strong, so sarcastic, and he stopped. And the amanuensis is looking at Paul, and he's sitting back in his chair, quill pen in the inkwell, and Paul's just walking around. He goes to a corner, and he squats down in the corner, and he's got his head in his hands, and he's thinking, what am I going to say next? And then he looks up at the amanuensis. He picks up his pen, and full of emotion, Paul says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had thousands and thousands of guardians, of teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. The emotion here is the memory of so many accepting Christ for the first time and having their sins forgiving and knowing it. Now they're acting like they have forgotten. And Paul goes on to say, therefore, I urge you. I don't command you. I'm urging you to imitate me. Now, when it pertains to our faith, to our lives as Christians, we all should be desiring imitation. The Greek word for imitation means being, B-E-I-N-G, being. 
This is not behavior modification, but character development because of Paul's example. I wrote a number of verses just down off the top of my head, uh, and I'm not going to even say the addresses. You'll see them on the screen, but you'll get the idea. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. We did this in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. Paul practiced what he preached. Oh, and I know, I know that you can think right away, well, I've known a lot of leaders that have gotten caught up in pride or think they're more important than others or fallen for terrible sins. I, we all know that. But Paul practiced what he preached. And we all must practice what we preach too, how we live, even when no one sees us. You know, God never leaves the room like the teacher did when you were in grade school. And so Paul goes on in verse 17 and says, For this reason, I have sent to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And some of you become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have what power they have. I wrote in my notes right away, talk is cheap. Jesus did not say by their talk you will know them, but by their fruit you will know them, specifically by our love for one another. And notice, Paul, this is incredible. He never mentions the names of the troublemakers. He is hoping they will see things his way, and he has every intention of accepting them completely. And then this next verse, verse 20, as we come near the end here, verse 20, uh, this is worth a whole sermon. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of Holy Spirit power. And then Paul says, and I think he says it sort of plaintively, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul's presence will be enough to quiet these men who are leading the people astray. Paul's gospel didn't stop at receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paul's gospel needed proof that one was saved. Someone correctly wrote, quote, for Paul, right thinking is not enough. The gospel results in appropriate behavior as well. That is why Paul said they must live in imitation of how he lives so that others can see their lives and imitate them after they're saved. Paul's life was totally different than those in power in the surrounding culture. When he taught and exhorted and prayed for the people, God showed up. When he was mistreated and misunderstood, he didn't change how he lived one bit. Pride had been eliminated and humility shone through just like Jesus. So now the question is, Is that true of me? We all must examine ourselves. I got this far, and I picked up my phone, and I phoned a man I hadn't talked to for a couple of years. And uh, he's a person who 
tells the worst jokes of anybody I know. I uh, wrote down about a half a dozen of them, but I've never used them in a sermon. They're too embarrassing. By embarrassing, I mean they're just stupid. He's uh, 90 years old, I said to him, because I knew he'd make jokes to me. So I said, the reason I'm calling you, I haven't talked to you in two years, I wanted to see if you're still a Christian. <laughs> the man was the man who indirectly led me to the Lord. His name is Don Hill. Just had his 90th birthday. He's a well-known businessman in London, Ontario. He owned the largest shoe store in southwestern Ontario. He built luxury homes, which are the envy of many. He drove luxury automobiles and also could have been a professional golfer. He won the Bermuda Open one time. And, and he golfs every day, by the way, still. But Don is known even today in London as a religious guy by everyone. It's impossible to have a conversation with him without hearing about Jesus. His marriage matches Paul's description of marriage in Ephesians 5, his children love and serve the Lord. I know him well, and never once have I seen him exasperated or worried or uptight. Now, this may sound Pollyannish, but it's true. I never make a decision of importance in my life without wondering what Don might say about it, or even calling him and asking him. Then Dr. Bill McRae, he just passed 90 years old too. He used to say to me, that I must follow Jesus so closely that should I fall down while someone was walking behind me, they'd come face to face with Jesus. The more of us who can say, follow me as I imitate Jesus, the more who will want to know the reason for the hope that is within us. That can only happen if we're being filled constantly, controlled all the time by the Holy Spirit. So I want to close by praying just for that. We all receive the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. So there's nobody, if you're a Christian, that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But we still need to allow the Spirit to work in our lives. And we do that through learning the Word of God, of course, memorizing it and living it out in every way. The Spirit, He will help us to do that. But we still must be willing and we must ask for that. Every day when I wake up, I, every day I say, Lord, fill me with your spirit today. That means the word fill means control me by your spirit today. Teach me as I read your word. We all must do that. If all of us made that kind of a commitment and made it every day anew, uh, the, the world around us would change. So let me pray for you. And as I do, I pray that God will speak to all of us here. Dear Father, you did send your son, Jesus, to die for our sins on the cross. And if we confess that we're sinners and that he really, Jesus is God and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, then we'll be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, I'm, I'm sure that most of us here are, and there may be some who aren't, and I pray that they would actually today ask you to save them, because we must ask. And to as many as did receive him, then they become children of God. But we must receive that. But then, Father, we all receive the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we live our lives without even thinking about him, because he is God. And the Father, through Jesus, sent the Spirit also. And so I pray right now, Father, that we'll all make this commitment right now, even if we've already made it, 
and just simply say in our heart of hearts, Holy Spirit, just fill me, control me. Take control of my life. Teach me. Lead me every moment of this day. It says in the Bible, if we ask anything in the name of Jesus uh, that's in his will, that we have it. And so to ask for the Holy Spirit to take over our life right now, then he will do that, and he'll guide us. And then we can walk in the Spirit. And we'll be surprised at how God intervenes at just the right time when we're going through the trials and difficulties and testings and disciplines that come our way. So Holy Spirit, be present with us in this service in a way that is just powerful to all of us. And help us to do your will and help us to reach many others who will want to imitate us as we imitate Christ. In Jesus' name.